Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Ryan McRae. Ryan is passionate about helping others own their careers. He is currently the head of career development at Atlassian, where he leads development and mobility programs for a growing global technology company with more than 7,000 employees. Prior to Atlassian, Ryan was vice president, manager of talent development at Commerce Bank, where he built their corporate-wide professional development program from scratch. Ryan has certifications in situational leadership, psychological safety, DISC, MBTI, and social and emotional intelligence, among others. And in this conversation, we really talk about what goes into building a corporate learning environment and how to identify the needs of your organization, how to build programs that meet those needs, how to deliver training that sticks with people over time, and how to measure it to make sure that you're having the short and long-term impact that you want to have with the training because there is a lot of time and money that goes into building a successful training program. And you want to make sure that they're working for you. We talk a lot about agile and how they've used agile methodologies in their trainings and uh, a number of other interesting topics related to development. Ryan is clearly an expert at what he does and has demonstrated that at several companies so far. I think there's a lot in here for the audience to learn, and I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. Here is Ryan McRae. Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, hello. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This will be a fun one. I've done one or two conversations like this on learning and development, but not with anybody who sits in your seat and is actually building these programs. So I think this would be an insightful conversation for how companies actually develop their people. So my first question is just, how did you come to do this work? Like, How, how does one become a learning and development leader? So I'm actually one of those weirdos that went to school for this. So I've got two psychology degrees. Uh, my first degree was just a, a general psychology degree. While I was getting that, I was trying to figure out what to do with it because my professors wanted me to be professors and a lot of other people wanted me to be a clinical psychologist. I was not interested in either of those things. <laughs> so I ended up taking a class in IO or industrial organizational psychology. And I was like, oh my, I like this. Because really, if I was to kind of wrap up what is IO psychology, it's taking those psychological concepts of human nature and taking them into the business world and making the business better. That clicked for me. Like Once I had that class, I was like, okay, I know what I want to do with my life. And then I've spent most of my time in HR. and But I've worked in a lot of different areas. I've done everything in HR except for really payroll. And then I haven't ever worked with unions. But besides that, I've spent time as an HR business partner in people analytics world. I've done recruiting. I've done training. I've done all of it. 
But what really excites me is the development side of the house. So when you're talking about like career development, people development, leadership development, executive development, that's what's really always turned my crank. And that's what gets me excited about coming into work every day. And what is it that drew you to that element of the HR function? I think one, yeah, I went to school for it. But beyond that, it's just who I am. Just had coffee with somebody this morning and it evolved into like a full-blown career development conversation because she was in a spot where she's like, I just don't know what I want to do next, Ryan. I'm like, I'm in my my mid-40s. I'm not sure. I feel like I'm having a midlife crisis. I don't know what I need to do in my career. So we ended up just evolving into that career development conversation right there. And we've got to have a follow-up session because I gave her homework. She's got to come back with some of the answers so I can help guide her in what she might need and help help her think about this a little bit more. It's it's honestly just in my blood. I almost talked to anyone to do this. Was it in the IO psych degree that you learned the the coaching and development and learning skills and frameworks or have you learned and pulled from other areas to kind of form your knowledge base since then? Uh, Great question. Definitely a lot of the basis of it. So if we want to say the foundation of my house of of kind of career development and development, where did that come from? Definitely from my degree. I mean, I had classes in stats, but I also had classes in like team dynamics. I had classes in surveys. We had classes in a lot of psychological concepts. We classes in organizational development. So some of my my knowledge kind of came from there. But obviously you you it changes and leadership changes the way we're looking at all of this changes, how we're looking at development changes. So I think just going through my career, I've worked at five different companies and had an opportunity to really get a lot of different types of experiences. It's actually one of the things I talk about with people a lot with career development is this idea of experience and really getting the experiences that you need to be fulfilled and to kind of grow. And so I've done that a lot through my career. So a good basis from school, but I've just added on it all the time. I'm constantly reading books, constantly reading articles, talking to other professionals in this field. I want to learn more and help others too. That's, that's great. And I'm always interested, like, you know, did it come from formal training or is it just picked up over time? Most of what I do now professionally, almost everything that I do now professionally came through either on the job training or just personal training on the side. So was not something that I, I picked up formally. There is a lot when it comes to career development and, and every kind of development that, that goes on within an organization, right? You have to develop your leaders. You have to develop the skill set of your employees, both hard skills, soft skills, communication styles, working styles, collaboration. There's just like so much that goes on to develop a really healthy team. Where does a company start? Like if a company says like, look, we want to look blue sky at what we're doing, like start from scratch. If we were going to erase everything that we've done and start over, how should a company be thinking about building out training within their organization? How would you, how would you sort of frame it up? And like, what, what's the step-by-step process to like evolving this within a business? It truly comes to me and starts with understanding the needs of the business. So what I've seen a lot of people in the TD, L&D kind of world do is sometimes just become order takers. So people come to them and say, hey, 
I think my team needs this, you know, can you put a training together and make sure that you can take care of it in 45 minutes so that my people will be perfect going forward in the future, but one that's not realistic at all. So every time I do anything, whether it's a big training, whether it's a full program, whether it's thinking about a learning strategy, or I'm in the process right now of really thinking about what is our philosophy of career development at my current company, it all starts with a needs assessment. And, and I look at that a couple different ways. I want to know qualitative information. So I want to talk to a lot of people and find out what's actually going on. I ask people a lot of questions when they come to me and they're interested in having some sort of initiative or doing some sort of training. Also, I want to see the data. I'm a very data-driven guy. That's probably part of that IO site background we were talking about. I took a lot of stats classes. So I want to understand that what are people saying? What is the data telling us? Because sometimes those two things don't match up. What, is some of the, what are some of the different perspectives here? So, okay, so what do the people world feel like versus what do the leaders feel like they need? What do the potential team members or employees at the organization feel, feel what they need? I also like to think a little bit about things with a future lens. So what do we need in the future? If we think about leaders, you can't just think about what you need for leaders right now if you're running a leadership development program. You have to understand what might you need in a leader two years from now or three years from now or five years from now. Because I mean, we're in the middle of a spot right now where leadership is changing drastically. So if people are just looking at current to be thinking about their leadership, they probably need to be thinking about the future too. So to me, it's all about needs assessment. You have to understand what it is. I've never been one of those L&D professionals that's like, let's just throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks. Like, you know, I want to know why I'm doing the training. And then I want to make sure the training or the initiative or, you know, the experience that we're looking for or the, or the intervention sometimes, I want to know why we're doing it. I know what the goals of getting it is. And then I want to make sure that everyone involved in this process is committed. Because it's a lot of the times, you know, you do training, you walk away from it. And did somebody really get anything out of that? Sometimes they did. But a lot of it is on that leader to actually continue the education and make sure that it really, really sticks. It's not going to be me who maybe stepped in and helped guide the process. I'm probably going to jump out and have to work with another business line. So it's not going to continue that way. So how do you get that buy-in? Because that, I mean, that's a common problem, right? And But oftentimes leaders and managers are not training and development people. So either they're not interested or they don't know how. So how do you arm them to carry these on in a meaningful way to take the message that you're trying to get to everybody and continue to deliver it? Mm -hmm. I think you have to understand your audience much like you will with any other messages, message that you, you take and you, and you give and you put out there. I think about, I worked with scientists for four and a half, five years during my career. And so when we were talking about growth of their people, they're scientists. So they think about things in scientific terms. So they would say, well, I don't understand why, you know, Jill is doing this. And I'm like, okay, well, what's your hypothesis? And they'd be like, what do you mean? I'm like, what's your hypothesis? Why do you think Jill is doing what she's doing? Oh, well, I think it might be this or this. Okay. So what questions can you ask? What experiments can you run to see why she's actually exhibiting that behavior? Oh, you can do that with, yes. <laughs> I put it in their mindset, in their terms, in their words. And I've worked with lawyers, you know, and I've worked with accountants and I've worked with IT people and I've worked with scientists and, and bankers and like put it in their language, understand your audience. If they are going to be more of the people that need the heart and the mind, lean towards the heart and the mind and the research on why that's important. If they're the people that are going to need those data, those numbers, 
there's a lot of great research out there for the work that we do. Lots of research in the psychology area. Show it to them. Give it to them. Explain it to them. I think part of it too is that in our world, it is very beneficial to be pretty influential or be able to sell. And that's something that I do fairly well. And it's a skill set that I've built and kind of learned more about as I've went on. I didn't even know it was a skill set I had earlier in my career. I had to have a leader point it out to me because I was I had no idea that I had it. That's pretty important. What goes into that skill set? Because I we've talked on this show a few times about sales, and it's often the guests are people who focus on external sales, actually like drumming up real dollars for the business. But I'm a believer that the skills translate into all kinds of communication and especially, you know, internally within a business. So what are those skills that were pointed out to you that are so valuable in having people take the actions you want them to take? Sure. I think, you know, some of the things that I was told was really being able to answer people's questions on the spot was a big, big part of it. I also really prepared a lot for those things. So again, I was really big into understanding and knowing my audience and what things were they going to probably try to hit me with and what questions were they going to have and being prepared for those things and thinking about those before I went into that process with them and listening to them, making sure that I listened. But also, I think sometimes, again, people in the HR world can be a little bit of order takers. And I, I tend to not be, that's just not how I'm built. I'm someone who is going to challenge their thinking. So if they say, well, why would we do that? Because we can do this. Okay, well, let me ask a few questions around that. Why do you have that perspective? Why do you think you're doing it that way? So my approach is definitely pretty consultative. It is a lot of questioning sometimes in the way that we're working through things. And that definitely bleeds into kind of how I sell. But I also market things maybe a little different than other HR people. I'm constantly thinking about marketing and like how I would market this because we can grade, we can build amazing tools, amazing initiatives, amazing resources, amazing programs. If nobody knows that they're there, it doesn't matter. So I think marketing is actually one of the key skills and influencing that people in HR have to have these days. And if they don't have that, you're never going to get to the upper echelon of where you are in HR. What do you see when it comes to marketing in internally or anywhere really? What do you see as sort of the staples of that skill set? I think the staples of that skill set, especially for the work that we do in the L&D world, is that sometimes people can think of it as a little boring. And so how can you, how can you spice this up? How can you get people excited about it? How can you tell a story that makes sense to them? For example, like we got rid of our year-end performance reviews at my last organization. And so we started really getting we started having to communicate to people like why we were doing this. And for the most part, people loved it. Like, like nobody was like, Oh, shucks, the performance reviews are going. I mean, a, a couple people, I'll, I'll give it a dozen people out there went, Oh man, I love doing year end performance reviews, but it was about how do we make this more of a celebration that we're getting rid of this painful, painful process. And then explaining to people why we were doing it. So we had a really great video that had seven chairs and on those seven chairs, we had different items and we're talking about, okay, imagine if you think about you know, your week, if you wait to do everything on Sunday, then we put all the items in that chair. And of course, they're all falling out of it. You, know, you just feel stressed and overwhelmed and it's hard. Now, imagine if you split that out and you did that over those different seven chairs that you did some of those different tasks and items during the week. We took that same approach with having them think about performance management. Imagine if you were talking about this 12 times instead of talking about it once a year. 
So it didn't get so frustrating. It didn't get so overwhelming. It wasn't surprising when you came to the end of the year. So it was helping them genuinely get it and kind of connect with it. But also I think using humor can be great with that too. So using humor, you can have a little bit of fun. It's okay to do that. We see it in marketing everywhere and you need to do the same thing when you're thinking about L&D as well. But Ryan, this is business. This can't be fun. If I can get a bank a Midwest conservative bank to learn how to have fun. I mean, we kicked off our commerce view, which was our approach to commerce, you know, to development across the organization. We started that with a horror movie trailer. (laughs) Okay. I'm, I'm interested. Why a horror movie trailer? Because we just thought development was scary for a lot of people. And so we thought it was fun to play on that and do a horror movie trailer. It got people's attention. They, you know, we got that branding kind of in their head a little bit right away. Oh, commerce for you. What is this? I'm curious. I want to know more. Like, you know, be a little mysterious, just like everyone else is in the marketing world when they're doing some of these things. You know, we can do some things gorilla and really get people interested and excited about that. And by the time I left, commerce for you had a really strong brand. Everything we did in talent was rolled out under that brand. Onboarding, programs that we put out, different tools that we put out, all under commerce for you. And most people knew what it was in the organization. There was a handful that didn't. And we definitely hit everybody on the way in as they were onboarding. So anyone that joined the organization knew it as well. So that was something that was important. I think you can have fun. I think you can, especially in organizations, like we spend more than 40 hours a week in these places, maybe more 50, 60, if we're honest with ourselves. So, I mean, let's have a little bit of fun while we're there. So you had, you kind of made a not an offhand comment, but you slipped in whether you're running a program or building a training or doing a couple other things. And so I want to talk to you about how you structure these learning environments, because I think that's really interesting. And I I think oftentimes it's like, oh, we're going to do a training. Great. Let's get someone who's qualified. We'll put them on the phone for an hour. They'll do 45 or 50 minutes of speaking will open 15 or 10 minutes for questions or more likely some awkward silence. And then they're going to learn and they know how to do this. What makes a good training? And I guess, is it all the same or or how do you customize the training environment to the type of training that you're doing? You just hit the nail on the head there too. I think you have to customize the environment to the training that you're doing. You also have to really, again, it's understanding the audience. I think, and being really intentional about the way that you're doing things. You have to know what you're trying to get out there and what you're trying to put in front of them. And that's going to be a big part of how you do it. So there are certain things that you just need to get information in front of people. So maybe a quick 30 minutes is going to be a great way to do that. I will say that especially pre-pandemic, but now that we're all on Zoom, you have to figure out how to keep people engaged, especially adults. You have to be able to make sure that you're keeping them engaged in the conversation. That is a big, big part of it. I think the more and more you can make things experiential, the better. Because when we have experiences, especially shared experiences with other human beings, I'm going to get all psychological here anyway. That's when we start really building relationships. That's when we start building connections. That's the start of friendships, of those work friendships that we all need. That's the start of the bonding that you want to see on a team. And so when you can lean things into experience, I think that can make things so much better. So a couple different examples here of this. I like experiential learning a lot. And so that might be an action learning project. 
you know, when we're, when we're in a class, one of the things that I do every, uh, every year in the leadership programs I ran was bring in a group called Coca biz here in St. Louis. So it was the center of creative arts. It was their business arm. So these are artists. I had my, you know, bankers spending two days with artists and actors, improv artists, visual artists, writers, poets, because they were there to learn how to tell a better story. Who can do better than telling a better story than artists? So artists spent two days with us and we got them super uncomfortable. They, they were doing improv. They were doing some acting. They were, you know, having to think about metaphors and similes and how they would use them to tell a story and, you know, thinking about visual arts and having them draw something and put it up on the screen, which many of them were deeply uncomfortable with. So it was those types of things to really make them think about that. But every time we wrapped up a program, those types of programs, those experiential programs where they went through something, they did something, they probably got uncomfortable. That is when people learn the most. And so anytime you can lean into experiential and you can't always, but anytime you can, it's going to make it so much more important. And it's going to make sure that it sticks a little bit more for people. But all of this, no matter what, when you think about learning, the big piece that's often missing is that Remember, if you think about the 70-20-10 model, so 70% is experiences. It's This is the how you learn. 20% is usually some sort of social aspect of it. So mentoring, coaching, even maybe peer coaching, relationship building that you have with others. 10% is training. 10%. So 10% of how we learn should be coming through classes. Not all of it. And so that's a big, big part of it. And if you're not actually taking the skills you're learning in that class and going and doing something with them, you are going to forget them. You are not going to build the behaviors that you need to. You talked a little bit about keeping people's attention. What do you see when it comes to attention spans right now with the different types of learning? Like if for those, if we're just going to share information and we're just going to talk at people and kind of download information, what does... What's a good rule of thumb for somebody's attention span that we don't want to go over before we lose people versus maybe one of these experiential learning? It's a great question. It depends on, I think, the skill of the person that's training, first of all. So there are some people that are pretty good trainers. And then there are some people I try to really make sure when I'm training that I actually look at it as I'm on stage. And my part of my job there is not only to educate you, but it's to entertain you. So I spent 90 minutes yesterday doing facilitating a session with people and they probably weren't bored because I started it out with music and we were using a tool called mural where they were able to type and write their experiences and use their brains. And I was playing music in between that time frame. So one, I think that there isn't a, it's 20 minutes. You know, I, I don't think that you've got that. I will tell you what I have seen. I think virtually when it comes to zoom, once you start getting past 90 minutes or, or two hours or two hours and you haven't, even if you've done things to try to keep them engaged, like breakout rooms and Zoom and this and chat and all of that, there is a limit. Like I think Zoom training beyond two hours is rough. I think without a huge, huge break. So even in the leadership programs I ran, we would do a two-hour block in the morning, let them have some time, have them eat lunch, come back in the afternoon, and then we would do another two hours because I just couldn't fathom putting them in front of the screen for four hours and think that they were going to actually take anything in. Well, and that's probably true for the most engaging types of training. Mm -hmm. It's less, if it's less engaging. 
if it's less engaging, you may only have them for a certain amount of time, especially if you're not at, if you're that, I think the worst thing you can do is that talking head learning where you're just up there talking, 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 like they're not thinking, they're not having conversations. They're not writing something down. They're not, you know, having to do an activity together. Like if you are just talking head learning at people, and especially if you don't have an engaging personality and you don't know how to pull people into the conversation, you're in trouble. Like you probably can't do that for more than 15, 20 minutes before you start losing people probably before that, but they might at least be nice and not start looking at their phones right away. Not actually click off the screen and start doing Lord knows what behind the scenes, you know, and it just strikes me as we're talking, I mean, we've already talked about learning, you know, essentially education. We've talked about sales. We've talked about marketing. What you're talking about right now is, you know, facilitation and performance, which is another skill set. You know, there's a lot that goes into this to do it well. This isn't just get content, share with individuals. 100%. Yep. And then there's the data piece we, we briefly talked about earlier too. I think that has become more and more important in the people in HR world is to understand data, understand how to get to it, understand how to look at it and really be able to pull the trends out of it. And then how do you visualize and give that back to business leaders in a way that is important for them? that they can see what's what some of the challenges and problems are so that you can hopefully help circumvent some real potential problems in their business lines or maybe problems that already exist that they're not noticing. So do you consider yourself a niche expert or do you consider yourself a jack of all trades? It's a great question. I think I am probably a little bit more of a jack of all trades because I've had the opportunity, I think earlier in my career, and and there's a big, everyone always likes to talk about this. Is it better to be a a niche person or to have, you know, a generalist background? And, And I think both in a lot of ways, I started out my career with that generalist background. I would say the first 10 years of my career was very generalist oriented. And that was very purposeful and intentional on my part from a career development perspective. I wanted to make sure that I could kind of click and check off these boxes that I had that I really wanted these experiences to make sure that, that I could call back on those 20 years from now when I was in my career, that I at least had had experience working with those things. I would say now in my last you know seven to eight years, I've gotten a lot more niche into focusing on leadership development. And I think that's what I love. But the one thing that makes me a little different than other people is because I have done all those other things. So I'm a good translator. I can talk to the comp people because I've built a comp plan from the ground up before. So I know what they're talking about and I can, I can get in their world and have that conversation with them. I also can do that same thing with HR business partners. I spent a lot of time partnering with IT people and HR tech people and have put a lot of different systems in over the last 20 years. And so that's another skill set that you know I can pull on too. I think as we, as we start getting higher and higher in the HR food chain too, you have to have some of that generalist knowledge to really, really be good to partner and, and kind of reach across the aisle with other people in HR. I don't know. I want to say it was Grit by Angela Duckworth, where she talks about how so many parents who want their kids to be good athletes try to get them into one sport early on. And the reality is that you actually don't need to stick with just one sport for your entire life. And that top professional athletes generally were generalists up until either middle school or even high school. You know, they played everything. They tried everything. They learned and adapted their body to do all these different things. And then by the time they 
picked what it was that they wanted, they had this incredible athletic acumen, you know, body control, strength in all these different dimensions. Uh, and they were able to then dedicate those to, to their thing and surpass everybody else. And I think, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? It's the same thing, but as a professional, you know, a, I guess you can say professional athlete because there are actual professional physical athletes, but professional corporate athletes. And I was having this conversation with a partner of mine earlier this week, and he's done some incredible work. He really thinks of himself as a corporate athlete. And, you know, when he, he's done all kinds of things to manage his energy levels throughout the day, to, to make sure he's maximizing recovery, to make sure that his brain and his body are functioning in the right way, not so that he can run the fastest, you know, uh, you know, hundred meter dash or anything like that, but that so that he can perform and be cognitively where he needs to be and have the stamina for the volume of conversations that he needs to have in a day. And and, I mean, kind of what you're talking about here is building up a broad generalist skill set and then applying all the different things that you've learned to build up expertise in, in your niche. hundred percent. I think that's a great way to put it. I love that. They're kind of a corporate athlete. And I do think about that. Like, where's my energy need to be for certain times of the day? Like even getting prepared for this, like I gave myself 30 minutes to really get centered. And I even went back to some of the things that I've learned from those artists and improv artists to like, how do you warm up your mouth to make sure that you're enunciating in a certain way? You know, how do you use this? Like there are some activities I've even learned from those artists that I still use when I'm getting prepared to do a presentation or to get on a podcast or anything of the sort. So I've learned a lot from them over the years because um, some of them are very close friends of mine now because we've been doing this together for a long, long time. And that's been very beneficial, even in the way that I think about how I'm going to take on my day. I love that. There's a, a great book. I think I've probably referenced it on here called The Medici Effect. And it's about how the Renaissance really exploded when the Medici's brought all sorts of experts in all sorts of different disciplines into one area. And it was the fact that they were all meeting in the salons and talking and having conversations and doing their art around each other and talking about mathematics and that like there was just this explosion of innovation. And that if we really want to make leaps and bounds and whatever it is that we're doing, that we're going to have to build skill sets beyond just whatever it is that we're trying to do. We're going to need to be able to pull from a broader array of knowledge and apply that knowledge in different ways to this thing that we're trying to accomplish. hundred percent. I mean, I think, yes, I'm in the HR world, but I can learn so much from so many other individuals because I'm not an expert on everything. And I always love doing that. I talk to a lot of people with a lot of different backgrounds just because it helps me bring different ways and different thinking to what I'm doing. And, and that just helps with nothing but creativity. Because I do often see those things that, okay, so I see how they're using it, but here's tangentially how I might be able to use that in maybe a different way. And so I always love having other types of professionals around me. I know one of my last teams I was on, we had, in, we had internal communications people that worked with us. I felt like I learned so much more about internal communications by being around them. We had DEI people in our department. So it gave us an opportunity for me to learn a little bit more about DEI and partner with them on a lot of what they were doing because they were learning from me because they didn't necessarily have the leadership piece of it. So we were partnering to put some really great programs together. 
I love just being around different people that have different points of view and different perspective. That's the whole idea of why inclusion and DEI and why we're talking about it so much, because we've seen it, that the research shows it over and over and over again. You want a creative environment where things are, are really, really working well. You want an environment that's being super successful, that's meeting those goals. It's because they've got a lot of different perspectives going on from a lot of different people. So that's the, that's a big reason of why this whole conversation around DEI is really important and why companies, hopefully that's the right reason of why they're doing this and not just because they feel like they need to check the box. So let's talk about one of these examples, maybe where you pulled something in from another discipline and brought it into the learning and development space. And I know that you had mentioned in our sort of setup conversation for this, that you were using the agile framework to build learning programs. So can you talk about that and, and how you did that? Sure. So uh, at my last company, I was really lucky. They were really focused on agile, which seems a little weird for a bank that they would be that focused on agile, but they really were. So just to give you an idea, my ninth day at the organization at Commerce Bank, when I was there, I got thrown into a two day agile bootcamp, had never been through agile before, had heard about it. Uh, had heard really great things about it, but I went to a two-day Agile bootcamp. Wonderful bootcamp ran by great, exceptional Agile trainers that really got us in a really great spot. And so when when we started looking at, okay, I, I have a strategy now for career development, and I know how I want to tackle this for the next couple of years here at the bank. How are we actually going to do this? And I wanted us to do Agile. So we ended up getting everyone on the team trained in Agile. I had a scrum master. I was the business leader when it came to really thinking about what we needed to do. And we would run uh, in an Agile process. We would run three to four projects a year. And we would meet on a, on a weekly break when on a, on really a, a bi-weekly basis, we would have our sprints. We'd have our big sprint meeting where we figured out what we were working on for the next two weeks. We would have our standups to make sure that we really knew where we were at and holding each other accountable as we were going through the process. Also, should we can make, so we can make those quick shifts as we were learning more and learning more from our customers sometimes. And, and then we also really had a good wrap up meeting where we showed a lot of kind of what was going on for that week too. So every time we had those kind of sprint kickoffs. It wasn't just about sprint kickoff, but it was a lot about what is our retrospective? What have we learned? And where do we just need thought process from the rest of us? And moving fast and agile like that helped us really put out a lot of wonderful products. In the four and a half years that I was at Commerce, we ended up putting out about 18 different tools, resources, programs, initiatives, in the organization. And I had a really wonderful, very talented team, but working in an agile format, which is not usual for people in the HR world. It's just not. I've learned even more and more lately that even some tech companies, even though they, the tech company part of it maybe run, run on agile, that HR doesn't always take advantage of that. And you know, there's so much benefit from working in an agile process because you're focused on an MVP, which means you're focused on a product and you want to get that product out to the business in a way that's going to be beneficial for them so that it actually helps your customer. It, it's all about speed. It's not about it being perfect. And sometimes in HR, we get really wrapped up in perfect. And yeah. M MVP being minimum. Minimum viable minimal, product. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Tripped over myself there minimum viable product. So how do you get the the base level out the door and shipped and then improve it if you need to? 100%, right? exactly. Uh, and we, we really believed in that concept. So it really stopped a lot of scope creep that you see sometimes in the HR world. It was like, oh, well, we need to add this or this. So that's like, no, decisions have been made. Requirements have been gathered. This is our MVP, unless it's a drastic, drastic move or change or something that we've missed. And it was a huge hole in our plan. 
this is what we're going to go out there first. And we can talk about what a phase two and a phase three looks like. We also spent a lot of time really just making sure that we had pilots and spending time talking to people that were were our customers that were going to be doing this. We also made our teams a lot more than just talent development people. So after our first year of doing this, a lot of people started hearing like what we were doing and they were seeing what we were putting out. So we had our talent acquisition partners when they wanted something different because they didn't do a lot of project management or work on projects in their area. So it gave them an opportunity to do that. Same thing with our HR business partners. They didn't get a lot of chance to work. They were just dealing with the day-to-day of the craziness of, of working with the business and lines and the leaders. So it was gave them an opportunity to build the different muscle and a different skill set by working with us as well. We also pulled in people from the businesses. We had people, a couple people do some kind of secondments or, you know, or projects where they spent six or 12 months working with our team on some of these different projects that we were working on. We even brought in people who did L&D in the business. So we might have somebody who maybe was embedded in a commercial part of the business or a retail part of the business join and be part of the team as we were working on some of these things because it did nothing but make it better and easier to roll out in those parts of the business too. So that kind of agile mindset was something that we adopted very early and it made us very successful. I've often told people like that four and a half years I spent at Commerce Bank was definitely the most prolific part of my career. And I can definitely say that that was because of agile and a really amazing team and a really strong vision. So I have a couple of questions about agile. First of all, what is a scrum master? So a scrum master, if you think about the normal, you know, waterfall approach to project management, that your project manager is often that person that of course is driving and making things, making sure that things are happening. That scrum master for us, for me, is a very similar process in Agile. They work a little bit differently. Yes, part of it is about making sure that we're hitting our milestones. My scrum master really kept track of our Kanban board to make sure that we were we knew what we needed to be working on and we were moving through our tasks effectively during that two-week sprint. And sometimes they were there to have the hard conversations when we weren't getting things done. It's like, you know, hey, hey, Bob, you know, you've been on four calls lately, and every single time you tell us that you aren't working at all on your project or you haven't had time to work on your project. So what's going on? So how, how can we help you? What, what's the, what are the problems? You know, what, what road, what barriers do you have that we can remove for you? Or do you have time to be on this project? So, so sometimes it might be that as well. So very similar to project manager with a little bit different flair, I would say. Interesting. And then the way you just described the, I don't know what word you use, but the board that has all the tasks broken up, is part of agile breaking it all down at the beginning to say, here's the goal. And then here's every step and really tracking little step by little step as you go through the sprint. Actually, no, that is the whole purpose and difference of agile. So when you think about waterfall approach to it, you're going to take a project plan and you're going to look at it for like that. I don't know, let's say it's a six month project. You're going to figure out every little thing for every, every piece for those six months and what all those little tiny milestones are going to be. You're not going to do that with agile. You might look at big milestones. We often looked at big milestones. Like we need to have this done by then. We need to have this piece of it done by then, this piece of it done by then. But for the most part, that's what you really drive with agile. It's a much more flowing process. It's a much more, okay, this, we are going to tackle these pieces, but you talk about them as really what you're working on through that two week sprint. So you don't have every single little piece planned out because you, it, it makes it a little bit more comfortable 
to be able to say, oh, we forgot something or, oh, that's an issue or, oh, we ran into this problem that we didn't really expect. And you figure out how to adjust with that. So we still hit our deadlines faster than we would probably would have when we, we would have used a, a waterfall approach. We just had extra flexibility. That's what Agile gives you versus just using a waterfall approach. And is that because each of those sprints is essentially a piece of the larger project? 100%. So we were talking we were talking before about being a corporate athlete. And one of the conversations that I had with my friend the other day is uh, recovery. And so sprints are great, but you can't, you can't sprint a marathon, right? And, and business is a marathon. It's, there's no finish line. So how do you build recovery into this? So you're not just sprinting, 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 and burning everybody up. We would have weeks where we wouldn't be sprinting. So we might take a week, like a blackout week, or you know, where you could focus and work on other things that you needed to or other projects that you might have. I would also say that we weren't, all of the projects that we were working on weren't always super busy in every single sprint. So there was time where the project you're working on maybe is sprinting pretty heavy at that time, but there's other projects that aren't. So how can those people potentially help out if we are getting to a spot where we need to move things a little bit faster? Two, like I said, it just makes sense that sometimes you need to take a break. And even if we are working on a project, maybe we have a really light week, we can minimize the amount of time that we're having to spend together. Or we know that, you know what, we've got three weeks where we're really just waiting on the survey to come back or this to come back, or we don't, we don't have everything that we need. Or we're waiting on a vendor for something. So making sure that you're very knowledgeable about that and you're giving people that break, I think that's a big, big part of it. And also celebrating a lot as you're going through that process too. So you have to celebrate the, the big wins and the small wins and the short wins. And that definitely keeps energy up and I think helps people recover as well. Cause you're seeing, you're seeing the fruits of your labor fairly quickly when it comes to a lot of this too. So that was a big, big part of it. And that was a lot of planning up front for me and the scrum master to make sure we're going to work on this project, this quarter, this, this quarter, this might have some overlap, but this person's going to work on this one. This person's going to work on this one or this group of people. So we know they're not trying to work on both projects at the same time. We know this person runs a leadership program during this time, so they can't work as much on this project. I think resource management, whether you're using waterfall or you're using agile, you have to be really knowledgeable and thoughtful about that so that you don't kill your people and burn them out. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of thought. It sounds like that goes in ahead of time to how this is all going to roll out versus just saying, Oh, this is what we need to do. So let's start next week. hundred percent. Okay. Pilots is the other thing I wanted to talk to you about because I feel like this is where organizations and just human beings struggle. On the one hand, we don't like to do things that might fail and make us look stupid right? Or get us in trouble that, you know, hurt, damage our reputation in some way, get us fired. And on the other hand, once something is in place, it's very easy for it to become the way things work and to feel like a takeaway when the pilot ends. In your experience, what's the right way to roll out a pilot and conduct it so that you really are learning something and then able to make the adjustments you need to make based on what it is that you learn? You know, when I think about how we've really tackled pilots and, and a lot of times when I've worked with these is I think there's a couple key steps to this process. One, you have to really understand what you're trying to learn and get out of the pilot. And that's a big part of it, you know, because I think there's pilots, then there's also user testing. 
So, you know, really understanding is this, is this working the way that we might potentially want it to. So you might pilot a training, but you might user test a piece of technology. Doesn't mean you can't pilot it too, because we've done that before. When we put in our mentoring platform that we had called Commerce for You as a mentoring job shadowing platform, you know, we did a lot of piloting of that program. So we had a structured pilot. We brought everyone together. We let them know what their role was, why they were in the pilot, what we were hoping to get out of it. We made sure they really understand. We wanted to hear everything. And we gave them a lot of opportunities to give us feedback. We had we had court, we had weekly meetings. We had a Slack channel that they could get in touch with us anytime. They could email any of us any feedback that they had. So they could do that through the whole process to let us know how things were working and how they weren't. It's just you have to have this nice open lens of communication to make sure that you're getting all of that feedback. For some of these people, we had already pinged them through the process earlier because we were really big into making sure that we understood what our customers' feedback was. Some of them even had done some user acceptance testing for us. So we may have sent them the site and said, Hey, okay, so tell us how this part feels like what's working, what's not, what seems weird, what doesn't look right, what can you not find? What do you think should be on here that that really needs to be on here? So that I think it's a it's a nice marrying of piloting and user acceptance testing and really making sure that you're you're doing that right and you're listening. Because if you do a pilot and you don't listen to the people, they will never want to do another pilot for you again. <laughs> Good point. So it sounds like it kind of sounds like what you're saying is the user testing is what you do first to sort of test the different elements. You know, you're not committing to anything. Big changes could happen and likely will happen. Pilot sounds more like when you've got a near finished product and you want to roll it out and really test the thing to say, you know, what are the final tweaks we need to make? But you're pretty committed that you're going to do something. That's how we've used it. Now, I think everyone might use it a little bit differently depending on the organization and where they're at. I usually like to do a good UAT or UX testing before user experience testing before we ever get to a pilot level. Yeah, I like that as kind of a framework just to think about the different elements of it and how you might step something into reality or into existence. So on the back end, how do you test to see if this is working. So you mentioned being very uh, disciplined upfront to really defining what it is you're trying to solve. How do you, how do you test and demonstrate the ROI to the rest of the leadership team? I, I, that's one of the first things I do when I put a project together too, is, you know, what metrics are going to tell us that we're successful. You know, and that so you're be, defining that at the very beginning. I like to define that right up front at the very beginning to make sure that I understand that, you know, and that can be very different depending on what you're talking about. And sometimes, quite honestly, in the people world, it can be a little hard to. But if you think about marketing, like we talked about marketing earlier, like if I want to understand one way that I really think about stats would be what is the usage um, you know, of certain tools that we've got out there? I want to know that. I want to make sure that I understand are people actually using the tools? Are they looking at the tools? Are they getting things out of it? That's part of it when I think about the marketing aspect of it. When I think about a leadership program, we're really looking for growth and behavioral change. So how can you understand and find out what that looks like from that perspective? You may give them a pre-survey or like a 360 up front and then another 360 six months after out of the program to make sure that you understand that they're actually changed or that they've their behaviors look different or the things that were lower for them on that 360 are now a little bit higher for them. You know, how are you seeing some of that behavioral change? You know, it, it might even be looking at 
other things like, okay, so if somebody was in a leadership program, we spent a lot of time looking at stats like how often were those people promoted compared to everyone else in the rest of the organization? We know what did their career track look like? Did it look different? Were they moving faster? Were they being promoted more often? So understanding, again, I think it's part of the background, the IOSEC background. Stats are really important to me. I like the practical part. I like to change heart and minds, but I want to know that I'm actually changing heart and minds. And I want to do the best that I can to understand what that looks like and make sure that we actually have success metrics up front that we know what we're getting into. Well, and what you just demonstrated is you're not just measuring something once at the end and then moving on. Like you you talking there about, are these people moving up faster? Are they advancing their careers, making more money? You know, whatever, able to take on bigger teams. Like tracking that stuff, that's not stuff that they're going to do coming out of the program. That's stuff that's going to happen two, three, five years down the line. So you, you have to, you really do have to pay attention and continue to to stay with those initiatives and those people like that's a that's a big purposeful undertaking 100 it is and and i think that's why you have to be thoughtful up front and how you're going to figure out if you're being successful or not some of those things are more short-term some of those things are definitely more long-term why do you do a leadership program well you do a leadership program because you want to build the bench in your organization and make sure that you've got that next level of leaders ready for that next level or potentially executive roles so why do you do that you don't do it for the short term You don't do it to say, yay, I loved this leadership development program. I mean, yeah, we got those numbers too, but that's not the purpose of this. The purpose is, are we going to see movement? You know, are we going to see leaders getting a chance to fill those spots that we needed to? Are we going to see those leaders be retained in the organization so that they're not leaving and going to other places? That's the important stuff. It's not whether they truly love situational leadership or not. Speaking of leadership, that was something I I did want to touch on with you and you had kind of brought it up earlier. It was on my list of questions to ask you anyway, but you had mentioned it, that leadership is changing right now. Where do you see leadership going? Where are we coming from? Where are we going? You know, I think leadership's been changing for a while now. If we think about historically, where has leadership been? I think about the 80s, the 90s, maybe even some of the 2000s. You know, we really believed in this whole idea of command and control leadership, you know, and that that was the way to lead. And I think it's because that's the only way we had seen people lead. And we, even in movies, like, you know, you just see the leader up there. And I think about office space. Oh, can you come in on this weekend? You're going to work Saturday. Uh, You know, like that's like, that's how we kind of imagined the leadership. We imagine this kind of almost stoic, like, I don't care about really what my people need or think, you know, it's, it's really just about making sure that we're productive and we get things done and we hit our numbers is all that important. No doubt, no doubt. But I think the pandemic drastically changed leadership. It was already going down this path, but the pandemic like literally opened up Pandora's box and you can't put the tooth toothpaste back in the tube anymore. Like you can't like it's out. And the idea that, people expect and have seen that their leaders can treat them like human beings and the idea of human centric leadership. So the idea that yes, you know, someone is a person and the idea that they just should leave everything else at home and like, Oh, you know, like just that's something you leave at home. You don't talk about that at work. No, people have emotions, people have lives, things happen. They have struggles and whether we like it or not, some of those things are going to be brought to the workplace. So leaders need to start being more and more prepared for that. They need to be more emotionally intelligent. They probably should be picking up a Brene Brown book every once in a while and learning a little bit more about vulnerability and what it really looks like. 
you know, and I'm not saying every lead, every leader needs to be like a bleeding heart, like vulnerable, like, Oh, every day I feel so sad for you. That isn't. And people that work even in the, in Brene Brown's kind of dare to lead. One of my favorite people is a dare to lead facilitator. And she, she, I think she just posted yesterday. She's like being vulnerable with your teams does not mean that you just let them get away with everything. It does not mean that you don't hold them accountable. It just means that you are actually building vulnerable trust. You're not putting up a wall. You're not wearing armor and you're not being, you're not sticking to that old version of what we say professional is. Cause the reality is the last two and a half years, we've all seen each other in a very, very different light, whether we liked it or not. People struggling with trying to figure out how to, you know, work from home and figure out what that looked like and then take care of their kids. Like I have a cup here from my old team in my last organization that says the tears of my employees. And that sounds horrible, but it actually means for them, like they gave it to me because they're like every single one of us like had an emotional breakdown at some point during these two years, of the pandemic, and you were always there for us. And you always listened to us and you always thought about our mental health and you always checked in on us to make sure that we were okay when we were all stuck in our homes and couldn't leave. So it's actually one of the most sentimental and I'm not a sentimental person, but I love that cup. Like it means something to me. It means that I was there for them. I was showing that empathetic leadership because I think we are in this rise of kind of this empathetic human-centered leadership. It's not the only thing that's changed because of the pandemic, but it's definitely one of the big parts of it. I think we also need to think about how we're holding people accountable and thinking about performance. So I think forever, we just sat and we're like, all right, well, Bobby was at his desk for eight hours today. So we know he did a really good job. No, you don't. We didn't know that. Bobby was probably in TMZ three of those hours because you were boring the crap out of him because you didn't give him enough work that he really wanted to do. So we were just, we were making these assumptions that people sitting at their desk or people being in the office meant that people were super crazy productive and they're not. We need to manage by outcomes and not necessarily manage by the amount of time that people are sitting in a desk or sitting in an office somewhere. So leadership has just changed. And I will have to say that I think some leaders are ready for this. There's a lot that aren't ready because we can't, can't close this back up. Like it's out there. People expect to be treated like a human and have a leader that cares. I think there are a lot of leaders that can't wrap their head around the duality of high standards and empathy and vulnerability. I think they see the rise of empathy and vulnerability as a threat to high performance and high standards. I, I, that's kind of where I see the breakdown or where I see the pushback, right? Is well, but our clients need us and we're high performers and we go above and beyond. And it's like, yeah, that's great. But that doesn't mean you need to do everything they ask every time they ask it all the time, as fast as you can. We are having this conversation within our organization because we're a service business and we do like to go above and beyond. We have mugs and t-shirts that say we live service. And through the pandemic, when our people were at their computers all day, every day, the volume of requests that have been coming in externally and internally, some of it's friendly fire too, has been off the charts. And it's really been a struggle for people to, to set boundaries. They've really been trampled. And so we're I actually, this morning, before we are recording this, I facilitated uh, three sessions on boundary setting. 
and that was a big point was this is this is meant to help high performance and to help us do our work better not just to get us off the hook about doing any work like that's not the point we're here to do work let's just make sure we're doing the right work as best as we can so i think i think that is an important distinction it is it's very important i'm I can tell you personally, I've moved into a fully remote role working for an Australian tech company. So I went from my whole previous 20 years of my career being like, I love to get up in the morning at like 630 and get in the office by seven, you know, and I, I enjoy being there early and getting in there and getting things done and then wrapping up my day around five and going home. I don't do that anymore. It's different. One, I'm working fully remote. Two, I work with Australians and people from all over the world, but, but especially Australians. And so my Tuesdays and Wednesdays don't really end until seven or eight o'clock sometimes, which means that I've had to change the way that I'm working and thinking about things. So that means when somebody asks me to do a really late meeting on a Monday, I don't accept it because that's my time that I need. Like I have to think about what that is. If somebody wants to have a really early meeting with me on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, I can't, I don't want to work 14 hours that day. Like, you know, I don't start until 10. I started till 10 and then I worked through my day and know that I'm going to wrap up a little bit later at seven. But if I've got to have that time for myself, I think you mentioned working out earlier, I've got to get up to be able to work out. I've got to be able to, you know, post the things I want to on LinkedIn or meet a friend for coffee or, you know, go for a while. I want to have that option for myself. I want to read read articles, books, and I have to find that balance for myself. And I think that's what people want. They want more choice. They want more balance. They want to be able to choose some more of that instead of it being dictated so strongly by their work environments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are coming up on time here and I appreciate you having this conversation. This has been really, really interesting and insightful. I do have one question that I wrap up with almost every time. I uh, would love to ask you, and you can take this any way you want to take it, but what in your mind is the purpose of business? The purpose of business. Wow. That is a, that is a very fascinating question. I'm not sure where to go with that. I mean, when it comes down to it, business, whatever business it is, again, it's about putting something out there, whether it's a product, whether it's a service, whether it's information. I think that's what we think about often when we think of business. But of course, for me, because of what I work on, that's all wonderful. And that has to be done. And that's why we all have jobs. And that's why the organizations are there. But to me, it's about the people, you know, how we treat those people, how we work with them, how we develop them, how we grow them, how we hold them accountable, how we build those cultures that make people want to stay at an organization. Those are all the pieces that drive what you do. Cause there's a lot of different things that you can have those different levers you can pull in an organization and they're all super, super important. But I think the people one is probably the most important, but I'm biased. That's all right. You're allowed to be biased. It's uh, it's just interesting to hear everybody's different perspective on that question, because I think we're all in business in some capacity, and yet very infrequently, if ever at all, do we stop and say, you know, what's the, what's the point in this whole exercise again? Ryan, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Anything that you want to share before we sign off here? No, wonderful. Thank you for having me on. So I do post quite a bit on LinkedIn. So if people are interested, they can... Look for me on LinkedIn. My name is Ryan McRae. And I post quite a bit about business, work, psychology, development, leadership development, career development, and have everything work. So feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, just follow me and, and see what I'm talking about today.
Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.